<clears throat> okay, <clears throat> today is June 25th, Sunday, June 25th, 2023. And the topic I'm taking up today, I hope it's not prophetic, <clears throat> might be, is boredom. <laughs> Get ready. <laughs> <laughs> so this, uh, this came to me when... Uh, my granddaughters were dropped out of her, off at our house, Sophia and Kirana. Uh, I think they're about two and four. If I were a better uh, grandfather, I would know exactly. <clears throat> Let's say two and four, certainly how they act. Uh, and at some time, after some amusement, Sophia said, I'm bored. And uh, it was very difficult to find anything that um, would satisfy it. And eventually, <clears throat> she asked to watch TV. And uh, some, some race car named Blaze that goes around and has adventures. Just the crappiest cartoon <laughs> ever seen. I watched it with her. She was, she was engaged and I was bored. So what, what, what exactly is going on when we're bored? I've seen it, uh, I've done a lot of reading about it, obviously, and uh, I've seen it defined as a state of desire for a desire. It's a state where nothing seems interesting, everything seems too hard. Almost everybody has had some experience of it. They say it peaks in uh, <clears throat> early childhood. Sophia's just getting into it, I imagine. and. Uh, keeps going up until you're in their 20s and then it settles out a bit and by your 50s apparently it's somewhat better. <clears throat> I read and then for some people, women especially, kicks up in their 60s. <clears throat> of course it's not one size fits all so your experience may vary. And a lot of people say there is a lot more boredom going on now uh, and that may or may not be true you think back to the simplicity of life back in the Middle, middle Ages, uh, in a way, maybe it's more, more boring. Certainly were less distractions, and we'll get into that, the relationship between boredom and distraction. <clears throat> Today, we have so much more busy work. So many people work at jobs that kind of seem bullshit. I don't know, sales and marketing and um, <clears throat> so a lot of people in middle management. It pays the bills, but for a lot of people it's not terribly fulfilling. And of course we tend to be more cut off than we ever were from the natural world. People spend, <coughs> excuse me. <clears throat> people spend time in front of a computer. <clears throat> they don't get out into the natural world. <clears throat> So many young people, you read about it in Korea and Japan especially, who <clears throat> live with their parents and never come out of the room. They're just in their room on their screen. <clears throat> the sort of failure to launch. What we really, as a society, don't know how to do is just to be, just to sit just to 
let everything go. The uh, French philosopher Blaise Pascal lived in the uh, 1600s, said, get this right, all of humanity's problems come from man's inability to sit quietly in a room alone. And there have been a lot of scientific studies of boredom, and that's one of the things they find is when people are bored, they tend to do things impulsively. They tend to act out. They're more likely to get angry. Uh, they're more likely to do things that hurt other people. Um, a lot of it is just when you're mired in boredom, it's aversive. It's, it's unpleasant. Uh, it can be extremely unpleasant. And we look for ways to, sh to stop it. There was one experiment that was done where uh, people subjected to some amount of tedium alone in a room had at their disposal uh, a button they could push that would give them a painful shock. And beforehand, this had been tried out, and most of the people had said they would be willing to pay money not to be shocked like that. And uh, a number of people in this study went ahead and shocked themselves. Anything, anything better than being stuck. One guy, one uh, outlier, shocked himself in a period of about, I don't know, 15 minutes or so, gave himself 190 shocks. <laughs> I think a lot of the uh, misbehavior of young teenagers, especially young men, is just boredom. Wants something to happen. I can remember doing uh, stupid things myself at that age. <clears throat> But of course, the, uh, the one modern innovation to get you out of your painful state of boredom is your phone. And uh, a million articles out there on the web about going to the web, going to doom scrolling to, uh, to try to find some sort of escape. And there's an article I came across entitled The Ennui Engine. Uh, it was written by a guy named Max Patrick Schlinger. And uh, there's a little bit about it on a website called Upworthy. I really don't know who the person speaking here is. But he, he or she says, the advent of social media and smartphones has nearly eradicated the idea of the empty moment. We no longer have to sit with our thoughts when waiting in line at the supermarket there's no need to strike up, strike up a conversation with someone at the bus stop to pass the time. <clears throat> or there's no need to just stand and feel the breeze or hear the birds. He says one doesn't even need to remember to grab a book before getting on a flight. Social media makes the promise that it's possible for us to be entertained and engaged during every waking moment. <clears throat> and then he turns to the case that this guy Schlinger makes in his article, The Cargo Cult of the Ennui Engine. Um, I'm not going to get into why it's a cargo cult. It's kind of amusing and interesting, but I have way too much material. So we'll just uh, talk about what he talks about. The Ennui Engine is basically what the web provides you with little sequential distractions 
that can keep you engaged and fend off your incipient boredom. <clears throat> but one of the problems with that device is, uh, he doesn't talk about it, but it's something else I read about. I love this word. It's called the enshittification <laughs> of the internet. <laughs> so here's how that works. You set up a site, I don't know, Facebook, Twitter, Reddit, Instagram, whatever, and you design it to be extremely engaging, and people flock to it, and then you have to begin to monetize those people. You have to find ways to make money off of it, and you can make a lot of money, clearly. And so you begin offering ads, and you begin uh, tweaking the content so it's more engaging, more perhaps more enraging. Uh, the more people are angry and pissed off, the more likely they're going to click on the next link. So you take an experience that was kind of nice in the beginning, and you gradually make it crappier and crappier. <clears throat> and the other thing you do is you make the rewards intermittent. It's been a lot of studying of operant conditioning, of behavioral uh, psychology, where if you are, have a, if you get an unreliable reward, sometimes you get it, sometimes you don't, that's actually about the most addictive setup you can find. So next time you're idly scrolling through whatever it is that, uh, that captures you, uh, notice that. Notice the fact you keep hoping you're going to find something that's actually engaging and, uh, and then decide whether it was worth it at the end. <clears throat> uh, the point that Schlinger makes is also that the content creators for all this stuff are extremely lazy. Uh, they've discovered that the bar is pretty low on the internet and you can get plenty of attention with minimal effort by creating low quality content. Uh, one of the great examples is the so-called listicle. It says, content creators took note of this trend and while many of them resisted it, many more adjusted accordingly. After all, why should they expend a lot of effort on something when lazy offerings were seeing more success? Before long, accuracy, quality, and correctness became optional requirements, and online audiences learned to expect mostly low-effort content instead of refined assemblages. There's also some research here that backs up what he's saying. <clears throat> Researchers in the Netherlands Raboud University recently found that phone usage wasn't an effective method to alleviate boredom and fatigue and even made these feelings worse in many cases. I'm no doubt preaching to the choir or else to the uh, unconvinced, but um, it's good to just set that out at the beginning. So much of what we do when we're faced with boredom uh, is fruitless, leaves nowhere. And we keep doing it. It's an example of what's uh, in Alcoholics Anonymous is the definition of insanity, 
which is doing the same thing and expecting a different result. So whatever, and by the way, another great antidote to boredom <clears throat> is drinking. Another one that, uh, that at least makes it go away and then causes all the other problems associated with drugs and alcohol. You could say chronic busyness, another possibility. Gossip. It's really a question of where are you going to go when there's nothing in front of you that's demanding your attention? What do we do with that? It's really a problem that's a modern problem. You know, not that modern, but you know, last hundred years or so, people uh, more and more have a lot of leisure time and don't really know what to do with it. What you choose to do makes so much difference. You know, the, uh, most people have heard this, I think we quote it usually in every workshop, the Spanish philosopher Ortega y Gasset, I think his first name is Jorge, said, tell me to what you pay attention and I will tell you who you are. And Thoreau said, I believe that the mind can be permanently profaned by the habit of attending to trivial things so that all our thoughts shall be tinged with triviality. It makes such a difference what we choose to do. I've often been struck by the, uh, the difference between <clears throat> the way that we veg out and the way that people maybe 200 years ago might have vegged out. We'll sit in front of a TV or a screen they used to sit in front of a fire. Have you ever done that, just sitting in front of the fire, watching it burn down? It's, <clears throat> I suppose it's another distraction, but it has a different quality. Um, maybe because it's natural, it's real. There was uh, an outing we had when I was first at the center. It was out at the Canandaigua Lake House of Audrey Fernandez, one of our founding members and Roshi Kaplow was out there. And at some point towards the end of the evening, they set up a bonfire and we all stood around and watched it. It's just mesmerizing. Remember Roshi Kaplow saying, we love it because it reminds us of when we didn't have bodies. <clears throat> so I'm gonna read from two or three guys uh, about some of the potential in this state that we label as boredom. can frame it a lot of different ways. And the first guy I want to read from, well, yeah, the first guy I want to read from is a uh, psychoanalyst whose name is Masood Khan. They actually, not only he, but Bertrand Russell, Walt Whitman, have words that have phrases that really are pretty similar in describing this state. For uh, from Masood Khan, 
the phrase he uses here? Lying fallow. And we'll say a little bit more about that. Um, for Bertrand Russell, he called it fruitful monotony. <clears throat> Walt Whitman called it loafing. There's a great quote from Henry Miller I've read before. It says this, to be silent the whole day long, see no newspaper, hear no radio, listen to no gossip, be thoroughly and completely lazy, thoroughly and completely indifferent to the fate of the world, is the finest medicine a man can give himself. <clears throat> to part of our job, just becoming a real person, is to be able to be alone with ourselves, to be sitting alone in a room, to be comfortable in our own skin, not to have to be distracted. To be able to be in a situation that's unpleasant to some degree and not spin off immediately. There's so many things that come up. Just Let's just talk about things that come up in the body, little twinges in the chest or wherever. How many times do those things just get pushed down below the level of consciousness as we look for some way to spin out of it? So many things where if we turn and meet it, Everything changes, everything blossoms. It's really a lot of what Zen practice is about. There's a, there's a phrase that was coined by an, uh, one of the uh, teachers in the Thai forest tradition whose name is Ajahn Sumedho. I've quoted this before. He said, right now it's like this. such a good thing to remind ourselves of. How else could it be? It can only be like this. The present is what we're given. Sure, you can change it, if you can. But if you can't, what are you going to do? <clears throat> Find out what's there. Find out what's there. So anyway, turning to uh, this fellow, Masood Khan, he's a Pakistani-British psychoanalyst, uh, died in 1989, and uh, his term he likes to use for this mode of being is lying fallow. Khan defines lying fallow not as a neurotic, conflictual, or distressed state, but as a healthy function of the ego in the service of the individual one of those intractably silent states which we associate with the healthy individual. And radiating from this notion, I'm reading here from uh, Maria Popova, who uh, featured this on her website. Radiating from this notion is a reminder that we are infinitely complex totalities forged by a process of slow incubation and incremental becoming. that how we govern our interiority, how we tend to these processes as they shape us, shapes every outward expression of our lives. 
<clears throat> and then back to Masud Khan. The capacity for lying fallow is a function of the process of personalization in the individual. This process of personalization, I'm sure this has some specific meaning in psychoanalytic theory, <clears throat> but I think I, we have a general idea of what we're talking about here, achieves its sentient wholeness over a slow period of growth, development, and acculturation, and its true matrix is a hierarchy of relationships. <clears throat> this might be getting a little boring here. <laughs> <laughs> this is a long process, and it is waylaid by many a traumata, personal, familial, and social. But if all goes well, and it does more often than not, what crystallizes and differentiates into the separate status of adult selfhood is a personalized individual with his own privacy, inner reality, and sense of relatedness to his social environment. A real person, in short. <clears throat> There's a line in the, uh, the uh, series, Succession, which many of you may have seen, where Logan Roy, the patriarch of the family, says, I love you, but you're not serious people. Khan also says, in our excessive zeal to rescue and comfort the individual, talking about all the militant focus on self-help and self-improvement, we have perhaps overlooked some of the basic needs of the person to be private, unintegrated, and to lie fallow. Khan says, what does the fallow mood achieve for us? The answer is a paradox a great deal, and nothing. It is a nutrient of the ego and a preparatory state. It supplies the energic substratum for most of our creative efforts. And through it, unintegrated psychic suspended, and through it, unintegrated psychic suspended animation allows for that larval inner experience that distinguishes true psychic creativity from obsessional productiveness. <clears throat> larval, of course, means In a, in a previous, in a, in a growing state, like the larva of, a, of an insect. He says, lying fallow is above all the proof that a person can be with, him, with himself unpurposefully, with himself or herself. And then he goes on, but while lying fallow is the antipode, that is the opposite of productivity, it is also paradoxically the antipode of leisure. And here's a great rant. It is a strange and uncanny result of urban civilization and the impact of technology on human experience that leisure has become a pursuit and an end in itself. It has gradually become an industry, a profession, and an imperative social need of the individual in modern societies. Everyone strives for more and more leisure 
and knows less and less what to do with it. Hence the emergence of a colossal trade in organizing people's leisure. This need is perhaps one of the real absurdities of our existence today and it reflects the decay of some crucial value systems in all types and kinds of human beings. The pursuit of frantic leisure is perhaps one of the most dissipating qualities of the technical cultures. The individual on whom leisure has been imposed in massive doses and who has little capacity to deal with it then searches for distraction that will fill this vacuum. A great deal of the distress and psychic conflict that we see clinically is the result of a warped and erroneous expectancy of human nature and existence. It is the omnipresent fallacy of our age that all life should be fun and that all time should be made available to enjoy this fun. The result is apathy, discontent, and pseudo-neurosis. Later on he says, the entertainment media of modern cultures have further exploded this leisure void for commercial gain and flooded citizens with ready-made switchable distractions so that no awareness of the need to develop personal resources to cope with fallow states can actualize as private ex experience. Should maybe make clear for anybody who doesn't understand that word fallow, it's, uh, it refers to a field. Uh, in agriculture, it's, it's sometimes helpful not to plant a crop every year, just to leave the field alone and uh, let it renew itself, which, which happens. I think in modern agriculture we simply add nitrates or do something else because <clears throat> we're looking for productivity. But uh, there's something wonderful and natural about lying fallow, taking a break, about renewal. So many examples of way that, ways that we can lie fallow. It's walking in the woods. Sitting on your porch. Listening to traffic. on from Masood and uh, if we have time to turn here a little bit to Bertrand Russell. It's a famous story about Bertrand Russell. It may be apocryphal because I've seen it attributed to other people as well. Um, he was at a party, some sort of soiree, and his hostess noticed him standing alone and came up to him and said, Lord Russell. <clears throat> he, was, he was knighted at some point. And Lord Russell, I hope you're enjoying yourself. And he said, sardonically, it is the only thing I am enjoying. <laughs> and Russell writes, this is in his uh, uh, book, uh, what's the book? The Conquest of Happy 
happiness, and it's from a chapter called Boredom and Excitement. <clears throat> the term that he uses for the positive aspect of these down states is fruitful monotony. <clears throat> and he writes, we're less bored than our ancestors were, but we are more afraid of boredom. We have come to know, or rather to believe, that boredom is not part of the natural lot of man, but can be avoided by a sufficiently vigorous pursuit of excitement. Now this is written back, in the book was published in 1930. So this is probably written during the, uh, the Roaring Twenties. <laughs> and he says, as we rise in the social scale, the pursuit of excitement becomes more and more intense. Those who can afford it are perpetually moving from place to place, carrying with them as they go, gaiety, dancing, and drinking but for some reason always expecting to enjoy these things more in a new place. Those who have to earn a living get their share of boredom, of necessity, in working hours, but those who have enough money to be freed from the need of work have as their ideal a life completely freed from boredom. It is a noble idea, and far be it from me to decry it, but I am afraid that like other ideals it is more difficult to achievement than the idealists suppose. After all, the mornings are boring in proportion as the previous evenings were amusing. There will be middle age, possibly even old age. At 20, men think that life will be over at 30. Perhaps it is as unwise to spend one's vital capital as one's financial capital. Perhaps some element of boredom is a necessary ingredient in life. <clears throat> And then he says, later on, there are two sorts of boredom, of which one is fructifying, while the other is stultifying. The fructifying kind, that is the fruitful kind, arises from the absence of drugs, and the stultifying kind from the absence of vital activities. And of course, <clears throat> he's clear to, to explain that what applies to drugs applies also within limits to every kind of excitement. A life too full of excitement is an exhausting life in which continually stronger stimuli are needed to give the thrill that has come to be thought an essential part of pleasure. A person accustomed to too much excitement is like a person with a morbid craving for pepper who comes at last to be unable even to taste a quantity of pepper which would cause anyone else to choke, <clears throat> or we could say hot sauce. There is an element of boredom which is inseparable from the, uh, from the avoidance of too much excitement. And too much excitement not only undermines the health, but dulls the palate for every kind of pleasure, substituting titillations for profound organic satisfactions, cleverness for wisdom, and jagged surprises for beauty. A certain power of enduring boredom is therefore essential to a happy life and is one of the things that ought to be taught to the young. <clears throat> he goes on to criticize the way parents raise their children long before the advent of Blaze the talking car and the kitty iPad. He says, a child develops best when like a young plant he is left undisturbed in the same soil. Too much travel, too many variety of impressions are not good for the young and cause them as they grow up to become incapable 
of enduring fruitful monotony. Some of my memories of childhood are times of just nothing happening, just watching rain move down a screen, looking at the frost on our windows, uninsulated windows in Minneapolis. For amusement, I would take a quarter and press it against the frost, <laughs> make a little indentation, reverse image of Thomas Jefferson. <clears throat> Actually, I don't know if it was Thomas Jefferson back then. One final paragraph from, from Russell. I do not mean that monotony has any merits of its own. I mean only that certain good things are not possible except where, where there is a certain degree of monotony. A generation that cannot endure boredom will be a generation of little men, of men unduly divorced from the slow processes of nature, of men in whom every vital impulse slowly withers as though they were cut flowers in a vase. Now I want to turn to something <clears throat> even more attuned to our lives. This is from uh, a Buddhist scholar and teacher, uh, Stephen Batchelor. Uh, visited the center, maybe it was the 30th anniversary, 30th and 40th. Um, we got to meet him and his wife, Martine. not only a practitioner, but also really um, pretty deep philosopher, at least to my, to my mind. Again, we can only sort of skim through this. So he wrote a book called The Art of Solitude. And uh, he says, true solitude is a way of being that needs to be cultivated. You cannot switch it on or off at will. Solitude is an art. Mental training is needed to refine and stabilize it. When you practice solitude, you dedicate yourself to the care of the soul. says, don't expect anything to happen. Just wait. This waiting is a deep acceptance of the moment as such. <clears throat> Nietzsche called it, Nietzsche called it, amor foti, amar fati, unquestioning love of whatever has fated you to be here. You reach a point where you're just sitting there asking, what is this? But with no interest in an answer. It is in with no compulsion for an answer, you know, feeling there's something that you need to grasp. The longing for an answer compromises the potency of the question. Can you be satisfied to rest in this puzzlement, this perplexity, in a deeply focused and embodied way, just waiting without any expectations? <clears throat> of course, what is this is the national koan of Korea. 
and uh, there are a number of people here at the center who've taken this up as their practice, their koan practice. What is this? What is it? But it can also be phrased as, who am I? Or, what am I? Or as Mu. Just looking into our being. Right now it's like this. What is it? He says, ask what is this, then open yourself completely to what you hear in the silence that follows. Be open to this question in the same way as you would listen to a piece of music. Pay total attention to the polyphony of the birds and wind outside, the occasional plane that flies overhead, the patter of rain on a window. Listen carefully. <clears throat> And notice how listening is not just an opening of the mind, but an opening of the heart, a vital concern or care for the world, the source of what we call compassion or love. He goes on to say, to be alone at your desk or in your studio is not enough. You have to free yourself from the phantoms and inner critics who pursue you wherever you go. <clears throat> it's all the, all the detritus and self-criticism of the thinking mind. He quotes the composer John Cage, when you start working, everybody is in your studio, the past, your friends, enemies, the art world, and above all, your own ideas, all are there. But as you continue painting, they start leaving one by one and you are left completely alone. Then, if you are lucky, even you leave. <laughs> Something interesting that the uh, ancient Chan master Da Wei said, when there is no flavor, no interest, this is a good time. Do not abandon it. A woman named Anne Lamott said, almost everything will work again if you unplug it for a few minutes, <laughs> including you. says, to integrate contemplative practice into life requires more than becoming proficient in techniques of meditation. It entails the cultivation and refinement of a sensibility about the totality of your existence, from intimate moments of personal anguish to the endless suffering of the world. This sensibility encompasses a range of skills, mindfulness, curiosity, understanding, collectedness, compassion, equanimity, care. Each of these can be cultivated and refined in solitude, but has little value if it cannot survive the fraught encounter with others. Never be complacent about contemplative practice. It is always a work in progress. The world is here to surprise us. 
our most, my most lasting insights have occurred off the cushion, not on it. <clears throat> Finally, he says, look long and hard enough at yourself in isolation and suddenly you will see the rest of humanity staring back. Sustained aloneness brings you to a tipping point where the pendulum of life returns you to others. And of course, that's the ideal in Mahayana Buddhism. Returning to the marketplace. <clears throat> Coming to understanding for the sake of others. When we begin practice, very often that's one of our first struggles, is just feeling bored on the mat. How many people in their first session didn't agonize over the huge length of time that stretched out before them, especially with pain in the legs or whatever afflictions were piling up? <clears throat> There's something I read in preparation for this talk, which I didn't use, where a woman was assigned by her art teacher to go to a museum in the uh, city, I think it was Chicago, where she lived, go to the art museum, select a painting, and sit there and take it in for three hours. She said after a while, she just was going out of her head, and she wondered if maybe an hour had passed she took, stole a look at her watch to find that 17 minutes had gone by. But over time, things shifted and she began to see things in the painting because she held herself to it and kept doing it. Things occurred, things appeared that she hadn't noticed in the picture. Expressions, patterns repeating. <clears throat> people find in Sashin is what seems to be taking forever suddenly flashes by. We step outside of time when we stop looking for an escape. Someone once said if Sashin wasn't painful it should be because that's how we learn. <clears throat> Same thing can be said of coming to an evening sitting and sitting for three rounds especially three 35-minute rounds. So that's a big lift in the beginning. I can remember the incredible difficulty of sitting on my own in a motel, some uh, strange situation, so hard it was to turn my mind to the breath. But we keep at it. And then things do change. <clears throat> the art of lying fallow, fruitful monotony, the art of solitude. There's a wellspring that's available to us 
we don't run away from it. If we take our lives <clears throat> seriously, not too seriously, and notice, see what works and see what doesn't work. Anthony DeMello compares running off after excitements to eating junk food. I think that metaphor is used in other places too. We need wholesome food. We need to do things that we truly enjoy. And when we do something and we're left with an empty feeling, pay attention. <clears throat> All right, bored you long enough. I'll stop now and recite the four vows.